Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have two guests with us, a father and a son team, Lloyd and Champ Rawls. They are in the succession planning business and run a company called The Rawls Group. They work with privately held family-owned businesses that are seeking to pass their business on to the next generation. True to form, Champ and Lloyd are partners in a family-run business with their own succession plan in place. You might say they eat what they cook. They share several fascinating stories of family businesses and their succession plans, and in some cases, a lack of one. Our first story is one where a family operation with three kids never had a disagreement while mom was around. She was the matriarch of the family. As long as she was there, no disagreements. However, when she unexpectedly passed away, the kids spent the next 10 years and $5 million in legal fees trying to sort out their differences. Pay particularly close attention to the key takeaway in this story. It isn't what you would expect. Then Champ shares a story of a rag-to-riches saga where a family-run business, again with three kids, was devastated when the U.S. government facilitated the confiscation of their business. Yes, that's right. They took away their business. See how the outcomes between these two families, each with three kids, was so different and, more importantly, the reason why. Then learn how sometimes succession planning is just not possible because of the personalities that exist within the family. And in this case, how a sociopath can create a literal wall to getting any succession planning done. However, there is a several lining to this story. Listen how this story unfolds. It may or not surprise you. So you'll just have to listen to the episode to decide for yourself. Finally, learn why 50-50 partnerships are not so nifty and how to avoid a deadlock decision-making situation that can destroy a business. Anyone in a partnership needs to listen to this story and understand the takeaways here. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we have kind of a delightful treat for everyone that's listening in today. We have a father-son team here that is with Rawls and Company. So, Champ, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and your company and where you're located? Sure, Marvin. Thank you for having us on. Uh, My name is Champ Rawls. I am a partner with the Rawls Group. Lloyd, who's also on here, is uh, the founder, chairman of the group. Um, He started this company 48 years ago, I think, uh, in September, if I'm not correct. September 48 years ago. And uh, we currently um, are a group of close to 20 people across the country. Uh, We are succession planners, and we often get the... Um, question, 
what is a succession planner? And uh, the the real answer to that, as my dad would say, and he started it, it's anything that uh, impacts lives and perpetuates legacies. So uh, all um, of our partners wake up every day, go across the country, deal with family businesses, and um, have a passion to uh, impact the lives of our clients and um, as succession planning would probably tell you, um, perpetuate their legacy. And um, that has so many factors in it that we could talk for days. But I think the stories that we'll tell you today, hopefully are a little microcosm of the things that we've experienced, good, bad, and ugly, and uh, all of our partners as well. So that's us. That's the Rawls Group. All right. Well, that's a good introduction. As most of our audience and listeners know that we generally are speaking to advisors of different types, a lot of management advisors that are financial planners. We have M&A advisors, investment bankers, transaction attorneys, and such that join us here on the podcast. But this is going to be a little bit different orientation today when we talk about actual succession planning and that is what your core competency is and what you do on a day-to-day basis where succession planning does impact a lot of other types of stories that we have on the podcast. This one is going to be exclusively on succession planning. So let's jump in. Champ, I'm going to turn it over to your father here and ask him to start the transactional stories that you've been involved in. And perhaps, Lloyd, you could take a few minutes and share of the 48 years you've been in this business, over four decades, pick out a story that will really resonate with our audience here that they might relate to. And we'll chat a little bit about the takeaways from those stories as we get toward the end of your retelling of the story. Thank you, Marvin. Um Yes, you could uh, hardly make up some of the stories that some of the uh, families, some of the cases that we've been involved in over the years. One of the notable and very interesting ones was an agricultural family involved in ranching. Uh, We were introduced to a matriarch who was in her late 70s, and unfortunately, uh, she had not been introduced to succession planning. She uh, entered this uh, endeavor late in life. She had three children. Um, two sons and a daughter. So I, I would imagine that you're talking about a family operation that was fairly good size, you know, from ranching. You know, I come from the Midwest and where ranching is a big thing and in the Dakotas and Montana area. A lot of the people I grew up with were ranchers and their kids were ranchers I went to school with. But I'm kind of interested on the scope of the operation that you're talking about here. And as far as acreage, that's generally how you look at ranching operations is based on acreage. So what type of acreage are we talking about here? Uh, Yes, what would be a large ranch in the Dakotas or Colorado or maybe even Texas may not be a large one in, in the east. But relatively speaking, this was a large ranch because it was in the east and it was over 20,000 acres. That is good size. It was a cow-calf operation and her three children were quite uh, active in the business. And it was her ambition to pass this business that her parents had started or this ranch. And they had had assembled it uh, over many, many years uh, to pass it to her children and to continue this as a family operation. She understood that her children wanted to do their own things because they were in their mid to late 50s themselves. They had children who were involved and they wanted to have their independent lives. So the way she approached this is she wanted to divide the ranch up into three sectors. And uh, 
we got a color-coded map and, and she actually colored it out and she had the red, she had the rel- the yellow and she had the blue. And then there was this little gray area, a small gray area. Just to get a visual here, just so I make sure I understand. So you actually got a map, put it on the wall and she color-coded in the different ranches of which the family operations were. And you said there was what, another gray area? Where was that located? Well, she had a color for each child and then there was a gray area. And I, I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, that's that's where I live. That's my homestead. That's not a big deal. It was important that they be color coded because we had to move the property around relative because if you know ranching, water is important, access is important. So all those things had to come into consideration relative to uh, her goal. And we decided that we would approach this from a let's segregate the land into separate uh, entities. At that time, we were using limited partnerships. And we did that from a financial perspective because we could pursue the lowest valuation in three parcels versus a combined 20-some thousand acres. And we met with the children. We met with the children's children. We met with the children's attorneys and their accountants and the matriarch's attorneys. And and we we just, over a year, year and a half, we had a a reasonably productive planning process. Now, it was not, everyone was not beating themselves on the, patting one another on the back. And and, and it was was business-like. It was a very effective, business-like environment. So I'm just curious, you're going through this, the motivation to do the planning, she was in her 70s, was she kind of the matriarch here, mom, was she in relatively good health? And this was just sort of anticipatory that she's got to eventually deal with these issues. And now's as good as time as any and sort of got you engaged and no big urgency or anything driven by any external event like health issues or anything? No, this was one tough ranching lady as she went out on her ranch every day and in in her late 70s she was vigorous she was healthy and we assume we had some runway which is a term we use in succession planning because you know the difficult we do right away the impossible takes a little runway and we needed a little runway to pull this off and we worked on 18 months everything was fine and we had a plan established and had the property segregated in its own entities and we were going to transfer all of these to a trust and lo and behold she has a stroke and dies just out of nowhere she has a stroke and dies i mean to use the euphemism she dropped dead literally and um it was quite traumatic um a week or so later, I'm at the funeral. No, so I'm curious, in, in the succession planning process here, had you completed it or was it still in the middle of everything? Great question, Marvin. You never finish succession planning. <laughs> we work in three phases. We had done an assessment. We knew we had issues and we were there in the development and deployment stage. But the reality, we knew we never finished it. We knew we had a lot of work to do. And I was expecting and over the next 10 years to continue to work with this lady and her children to continue to deploy and refine the, the, the plan. I wasn't expecting to have a test in 18 months. And that's what happened. There we were. We had done the financial. We had really, I think, saved them from the tsunami of estate taxes, but we did not have time to really dive into the relationships and walking off the burial, 
So when you say time to handle the relationship, so you got a lot of the legal stuff done, but in order to do proper succession planning for those in our audience, it really is a personalized issue where you're talking about interfamily relationships and goals and objectives and frosting on the cake type of metaphor. Is that right? Family, feelings, finances, and the federal tax law. We call it the four F's. Okay. I hadn't heard that before, so that's good. I'll remember the four F's from now on. (laughs) And we had dealt with the finances. I thought we had her in a good position and we knew who the family was, but our goal was to become an adjunct member of the family. And in 18 months, we were still foreigners. We were still invited guests. We were not members of the family. But they did know me well enough that as we I'm leaving the funeral, each of the children independently came up to me and said, Lloyd, I'd like to come see you privately and chat with you about uh, about my mom's estate. And I said, hey, fine. I'm looking forward to it. I was anticipating it. But by the time the third one came up and asked the same thing, I said, whoa, there's something going on here in Denmark. And sure enough, over the next week or so, they all three came in. And interestingly enough, they all said the same thing. They said, Lloyd, you remember that little gray area on the map? Okay, so for context, as I understood and remembering back to your description, the gray area was where mom lived. And that was kind of her original home that she had, kind of like the homestead or whatever you would call it. 150 acres. 150 acres out of 20,000. The road to the homestead went right up the property line of two of the colors that separated two of the children. Okay. And it just went into a little gray area. And relative to 20,000 acres, it was a flea on elephant's butt. But it was evidently pretty important because they said, you know, the homestead, mom intended me to have that. Was this sort of driven by they wanted mom's place? I mean, they all asked the same questions, and they're kind of on the same page when it comes to that type of discussion. And they're telling you they had discussions with their mother, all the same discussion that she had promised it to them. Is that what you're saying? Each of them claimed to have had the same discussion with their mother. (laughs) But the reason was not the homestead. They were more interested the primary purpose of them getting the homestead was keeping it away from the other two. Because what, unbeknownst to us, after having been involved 18 months, there was a lot of hidden animosity between these three siblings. I'm sure that they had some really tough times on the playground when they were growing up, and they never forgot it. And there was some serious animosity that evolved into sibling rivalry. To make a long story short, over the next 10 years, They battled in court. Okay, so I want to get context here. So over 150 acres, and your four Fs, you hadn't got to family relationships yet. So you were somewhat but not really aware of what the family dynamics were. And all of this, as soon as mom wasn't around, then why wasn't this discussed more openly? I'm just kind of curious. It's it's a very good question. I think two reasons. Number one, uh, if I'm a captain now, I was a, a uh, sergeant in succession planning 30 years ago. And I would say that I did not know then that the mandate was that I had to know the true feelings of the recipients before I could really put together a good plan. I made some assumptions with regard to the feelings of the, of, of the recipients, that is the beneficiaries, I did not drill down and I did not hammer them to tell me how they really felt about one another and how they felt about their mother. 
And as a result of that, there was a lack of honesty. There was a lack of expression among the family that they were not going to express themselves as long as their mother was alive. Uh, ranchers have a great deal of pride. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, they do not want to be, they don't what they do not want their good to be spoken evil of. And they just would suffer themselves rather than put any bad name that the X and X family is quarreling. I mean, that would be a curse. So they didn't do that. They just waited till Lloyd got to his office and they all came in and said, all right, man, we're here and the fight is on. And it went on for 10 years. The legal bills exceeded $5 million. They were fighting over whether the house was in probate court or federal court and who was going to get it, who was going to control it. And after 10 years, I think they finally concluded what I would have suggested at the table had I been able to get them at the table, which, hey, you want it together, put it in an LLC, own it three, two out of three votes, and that controls it. But no, they wanted to fight it out. And as a result, this family, which I thought could have a good 4th of July barbecue, they never met again for 4th of July. Forget Thanksgiving and Christmas cards were out too. They were, it was a fractured family. Sort of coming from the ranching, I sort of understand that mentality both ways, you know, that they're very close when they're close and when they're not, they're not. So what would be the big takeaway here, Lloyd? If you could put a one sentence takeaway, what would our audience take away from this transactional story you've shared? Effective planning cannot take place without honesty of expression of your feelings. Honesty of expression? Of your feelings. It will affect the planning. And if you put together a plan that's contrary to the feelings, it will fail. So just to restate that then, honesty of feelings for the family, and that I guess you're really saying that you really need to identify those as soon as you can or early in the process so you can deal with the reality of the situation. And in this case, I guess you're saying as long as mom was around, no one shared their feelings. No one shared their feelings. And they just thought they could uh, power their way through it. And it turned into a hot mess. Well, Champ, that was a great story from Lloyd here. Why don't you share a transactional story of another family that you dealt with and creating some kind of effective plan that also had its challenges? Yeah, well, I think the uh, thing that we can say about all of ours, with all due respect, is they come with their challenges. And uh, this particular um, client of ours is in the auto business. They own auto dealerships. And... Um, if any can, anybody can remember the Great Recession, um, they happened to be a General Motors dealer who, um, when the government took over General Motors. So for context here, I'm sure everyone realizes this, but during the Great Recession, the government lent or invested in General Motors. I can't remember the exact number, but billions of dollars into General Motors to bail it out. It was called the big bailout at the time. And so that's the circumstances you're referring to. And not only in General Motors, but apparently that has some ricocheting effects through the entire General Motors ecosystem of dealerships. Is that right? Correct. And other other manufacturers um, did this as well. But this particular family had had this uh, dealership for uh, 20 years previous to this. They were a successful dealer, small um, 
They had three kids in college at the time where General Motors essentially just came in and said, nope, you're no longer a dealer. And that was being really driven because of the government takeover. General Motors was under obligation to do that. Is that right? Correct. Uh, and, and it was, you know, uh, they essentially bad luck. I mean, they were just one of the roll up that came in and said, you know, we're pulling your um, your dealership. And so there I mean, and for a car dealer, the 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 new car brands is everything to them. So their 20 year business was just pulled out the rug from them. Their children, two of them were in college. One was in high school. Their two kids had to drop out of uh, college, come back and essentially do everything they possibly could to try and uh, develop a used car lot to make money for the family. So what you're saying, the kid dropped out of school to sell used cars to keep the family afloat? Both. They turned their uh, former General Motors dealership into a used car business just to keep the family finances afloat. And so otherwise, you can say that as rock bottom um, for the family. And so we were uh, engaged about three years later after that. Uh, they had, during those three years, successfully gone to court with General Motors and the government and won their dealership back. And so you can... Um, see in a succession planning story, the foundation here, this is a group of people who uh, are fighters and the entire family came together. So the family consisted of the mother and father who founded the company. Was it the dad or the mom? The mom, the mom. Um, it's a female owned business. It's a, it's a great story of um, one that I, uh, as I go, you'll, you'll see is, is pretty impressive, but um, it's two sons, a daughter, um, let's fast forward, uh, seven years, you know, now down the road, their dealership was taken away. They successfully went to court to get it back. Um, all five family members came together and we were engaged to really help them develop a, uh, family vision strategic plan to go, where do we as a family want to go from here? Um, and they have grown now to one of the largest um, and most successful car dealership groups in the country. Um, there are three kids who two at the time when this occurred had to drop out of college, had no car business experience, um, are now leading this company. Um, and we are effectively trying to, to your point of transactions, um, sell this business to the kids because the parents have got to a point where at rock bottom, no money, no income coming in to one of the most successful car dealership groups in the country. So when you say dealerships, you're talking about different brands, different franchises, because dealerships are set up as a franchise type of operation, where it's a trademark franchise, where they have the different brands and you're saying they had multiple colorships. Did they have two, three? What? How, how many dealership brands or dealerships did they have? They are eight, about to go on to ten. Um, and that you know, you can say the publics have a hundred and everything. As a private uh, organization, that's a fairly large group. Furthermore, it's not really about the size of them in the sense; it's about the productivity. 
for this group. And they happen to be um, eight of the most productive individual dealerships uh, in the country. And I'll go back to led by the three kids. And I think the most uh, amazing thing in their story is the family all came together um, and all decided that uh, unlike the previous story that we were talking about, we're gonna have a shared vision of excellence and growth. And they put a plan together and they went after it. And they're gonna have 20 soon. They're gonna have 40 soon. They've got goals to continue to grow. So I think um, it's exciting when you see that the opposite um, and you're involved in, in being able to, I mean, not, none of the decisions were ours that we made. We were able to help them um, understand their options. But I think it gets to the point where, uh, as you're saying, you know, transaction wise, um, we're trying to do as much succession planning. Cause if you can imagine there, there's a lot of value in 10 car dealerships. So uh, moving the value of these down is our biggest goal now and, uh, and helping them continue to grow. Marvin, if I can add this story contrasts from the story I offered that family can be on one hand, a tremendous asset to your business. So you're talking about the actual family dynamics and how the family functions or does not function as a family. Right. Well, what Champ did not share with you was that the dealership was out in the middle of a cornfield in mid-America. That was not a major metropolitan area. This family just came together. They brought the synergy. They brought the unity. They brought the passion. They put it together. On the other hand, the story I gave, the family tore it apart. The family on one hand, the family on the other hand, it just depends on which hand you play. They both had three kids and one adversity actually served as a catalyst for them to become more unified than they ever had before. And they all had a common vision as from what Champ is talking about. I guess they had this common vision. And when they were at the bottom of the barrel, they had lost everything. The government comes in and takes your dealership away. You have no source of revenue, no money. And that served as a catalyst versus something that broke the family. And that would be as you referred to it, Lloyd, the asset. Yes. And in your story, the family dynamics was not an asset, but a liability. That's a very interesting contrast of dynamics between families and especially in succession planning. So those out there in the audience that are family operations have brothers or siblings or cousins or father-son relationships, daughter-mom relationships, something to consider that are your family dynamics an asset or a liability when you are looking to exit a business and plan either for succession of keeping it family-owned or having those situations create the necessity to exit to a third party. All right, let's go back to you, Lloyd. Let's talk a little bit about a transaction that didn't have as many challenges, though they all have challenges, but didn't have as many challenges and maybe had a really good outcome. Thanks, Marvin. I would only add to what you had previously said that uh, the family business oxymoron, uh, you cannot run a family like a business and you cannot run a business like a family. So what are you to do? The result is that what you have to do is pursue what we call family business equilibrium. 
And that is understanding your vulnerabilities in, as a family, understanding your vulnerabilities as a business. As to another story, <clears throat> we were working with a beer wholesaler family that uh, I had a wonderful relationship with the patriarch and he and I worked together going back into the mid nineties for probably 10 years. Tell us a little bit more about the type of business. Well, he had, it was a beer wholesaler with several outlying distributorships. They were a wholesaler for a major brewery. And um, this business had been in the family for uh, 15, 20 years prior to my uh, entry, and they were quite successful. They were part, uh, they were very fundamental and very uh, foundational in the beer wholesaling community and the, what I'd call the emergence of, emergence of beer as the sport drink. If you're going to go to a sporting event, whether it be NASCAR, uh, football, or whatever, you're going to drink beer. And uh, he, this family was heavy in promoting that, and they prospered mildly from it. And I worked with this gentleman for about 10 years, and we did all the dive into his finances, the dive into his uh, business, the dive into his uh, the structure of his estate and whatever, and, and everything went well except the family. Uh, he had a sociopathic son-in-law that basically was a, he was an impediment. He was a wall to what we were trying to do. Just for context here, when you say sociopath, son-in-law, talk a little bit more about that. I'm trying to visualize what that looks like. What's in it for me? Anything that would motivate him to take action, it had to be for his benefit. He did not think in terms of family. He did not share in the concept that as a team member, you've got to be able to subordinate. You've got to be able to sacrifice for a greater cause. It was all about him. So he would be deceitful and lie. His sociopathic side, he didn't care who he hurt for the achievement of his personal gain. And he was, he just didn't care who he stepped on. And, and it was a very unfortunate situation that broke the heart of our client and his wife because they had three lovely uh, children, grandchildren of my client. He had, his other children had children, but, but every grandparent loves every grandchild. And this sociopathic son-in-law was using those grandchildren as leverage to accomplish his goals. And I kept advising the client that he had to make some tough decisions. Leveraging it by saying you're not going to see him type of thing? If I'm not a vice president, if I don't get a pay raise, you're not going to see my grandchildren. <laughs> I'm going to move to I'm going to move to Dallas. I'm going to move to New York. And you're not going to have access to them. Well, that wasn't a real tough decision for a grandparent. I mean, what have I got to do to placate this guy? And at which point I said to the client, I said, listen. What I've done for you in organizing your business, structuring your business, shifting some wealth, developing estate plans, developing the documentation, what I've done for you is good. I can't do any more there, but this son-in-law is an impediment, and I don't expect you to throw him out. I just think I need to leave because I'm creating a problem with the family, continuing to bring up that this guy's the problem. And we agreed that I'd step aside. I'd step out. You could see what the ending of the story was going to be like. And you did as much as you could. And for keeping peace on the homestead, you kind of stepped away and exited being their succession planner. You just wished them the best and stepped away, right? Well, our goal was to have a significant positive impact. I was no longer a positive impact. 
I had done all I could. And actually, I was creating a negative impact because I was calling the spade a spade. And my client was not willing to acknowledge that. His grandchildren were more important to him than succession. And I said, that's the right decision. There's no business gain worth a family price. Let me step aside. And I think this is going to resolve itself. Just continue to think about it. Continue to deal with it. And he he called once in a while. We would talk. We were very friendly. Great guy. And then, unfortunately, he died. And I was so grieved to hear it because nobody had a bigger heart for his business than him. Nobody had a bigger heart for his family. And I knew that he had left a mess because of that son-in-law. And about two years later, I get a call from his daughter, who was married to this sociopath. And she says, Lloyd, this was 2011. She says, Lloyd, we need you to come back. And I said, dear, I'd love to come back. You don't know how much I'd love to be working for you. But in lieu of a fist fight in the boardroom with your husband, I really cannot help your family because he is an impediment. And she said the magic words. She says, he's no longer a factor. We've had a divorce. And I said, hmm, when's your next meeting? So we re-engaged. And it was uh, the circumstances were that her, they were working with their mother to do the transitioning from her estate to her and her two brothers. And I was called into that. And, and her, her accountants and attorneys had developed a technically correct plan, which involved $15 million of life insurance. And they were going to pay the estate tax and they would inherit everything. And we came in and said, listen, we don't have to wait for your mother to die. We can set up a program now and we will sell th these businesses to an intentionally defective trust, which is a bunch of technical jargon here. But the reality is we set in place a plan in 2012 to where we can make it happen now. So we shifted the business, had some very tax efficient notes and moving fo forward. Here we are <clears throat> in 2011, I mean, 2021. They own the business now. The surviving widow, I mean, my wife who, who divorced her husband, her two brothers, they own all the business. Mom has a totally liquid estate. She's canceled her $15 million worth of life insurance, and we're happily ever after. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is, Marvin, sometimes you run into impediments. They're actually walls. I mean, you cannot move your succession plan because there's some family issue that is bigger than any any business issue you're trying to accomplish. And at that point in time, you just got to step back sometime, take a deep breath, continue to think about it, stay engaged. And eventually as circumstances evolve, a resolution will come. Now, this is a pretty stark resolution that she divorced this guy, but it's not uncommon of what we see that when you stay engaged, a resolution will evolve. So, to summarize your takeaway, which I think is really insightful, is that succession planning sometimes, no matter how hard you try, you just really can't pound a round peg in a square hole. You can go so far, and that as far as you can go. And what you just said is that if you step back, as you said, take a deep breath, eventually, if you stay engaged, solutions or resolutions will present themselves or evolve. And that probably, as you're saying, more often than not, that's what will happen. 
Okay, well, this is great. Champ, let's move over to you, and why don't you talk about a transaction you've been involved in that had a really positive impact on the clients you've been working with here. One of the famous articles that Lloyd has written is called 50-50 is not so nifty. So I want to repeat that there. That's a very catchy soundbite there. 50-50 is not always nifty. Yes. And the clients that we're talking about actually read that article and contacted us. So there is context behind this that um, from our perspective, um, one of the biggest challenges in succession planning are 50-50 partnerships. Um, one of the further challenges that we see in succession planning is the concept that siblings generally will give each other the benefit of the doubt. But um, obviously, if you got two 50-50 partners, in this case, brothers who have their own kids, siblings will not give each other the benefit of the doubt. They're uh, not siblings, cousins will um, generally not give each other the benefit of the doubt. And so this particular uh, situation was a, um, a company that owned hundreds of uh, franchise restaurants across the country. Two brothers came to own it exactly 50-50. There was no, uh, not one that controlled it more than the other. Um, and they had three children, two with one of the brothers, one with the other, who were both involved in the business. And uh, notably, this case had no deadlock break. So they could come up on a major decision. And if one of the brothers did not agree, they just could not do it. And yeah, so 50-50, we were engaged after reading this article to come in and assist them in creating this deadlock break, assist them in seeing any future uh, of the business through their kids who did not share the same um, values and culture. They just grew up totally different. Uh, one was the Northeast, one was the Southeast. That's kind of an interesting dynamic, I think, that's often overlooked in family businesses. Different families are raised differently because of the personalities of the spouses that are brought into the family and just the personality of one of the kids and how they view the world and how they raise their kids. True in my family, I have five kids, and each of those children raise their kids entirely different. They're having an entirely different experience and view the world differently. And what you're saying in the business context, that can be a challenge. And in this case, it was a huge challenge. And I think um, and, and that goes back to the reason that we were brought in. How, how do we help these brothers um, find a future together, which we spent many years with them, month after month, um, negotiating and helping and developing um, plans to the point where we eventually um, severely hindered the relationship with one of them. So your relationship, because of the position you were taking with one of the brothers and the family, they perceived you having a certain orientation or maybe favoring somebody over somebody else. He was not upset we were favoring one side over the other. It was we were being more harsh in the negotiations to get the agreement done, and he did not appreciate our take. 
So more of the stylistic and how you approach things. So he was somewhat offended, I guess. Yes. Uh, there you go. He was a sensitive artist. Yes. And we, and we were involved in some very, and, and what he created was some very grindy negotiations. And as an artist, he also was not offering critical services to the company. He basically was writing the company and he recognized his vulnerability and he took issue with us because everything we were doing was trying to perpetuate the company and he was thinking of how to perpetuate the very, very good situation he had writing the goodwill of the company. And um, so uh, uh, eventually we accomplished both of their goals, which they had hired us to do to come to an agreement with them. But the um, offense um, continued on with his side of the family. And um, what we were tasked to do was really build a relationship between the three cousins. So this is the second generation then? Second generation. So we spent a great deal of time beyond that, working with them and understanding that the success of this long term is no longer with the two brothers. It's going to be with the partnership of the cousins. And we worked very hard, I think, to the story that was just told. Eventually, the side that felt offended, the brother passed away and the widow eventually terminated our involvement in their succession planning. But I would say to the story that was just told, I think it'll be a very similar response that if you stay engaged, you get beyond an impediment and you have a complex situation such as them that us or another advisor or somebody will come back into their life that will be able to provide the honesty, hopefully pathway to succession where these cousins will find their path. But I, I'm confident what we did for them has put them on a path to the future with an agreement that gets beyond, as I said at the beginning, 50-50 is not so nifty. So if anybody remembers that one, that is a challenge. So the real takeaway there then is just that, that 50-50 is not so nifty. If it works, I guess, if you're 50-50 when there's a common vision, and you give each other the benefit of the doubt. But when you don't have that common vision and it's 50-50, it can be a real nightmare because you're deadlocked, especially when you say there's no tiebreaker. Correct. Well, Marvin, specifically, I think 50-50 can work between siblings who give each other the benefit of the doubt. It will not work among cousins who will stick it in and break it off. And that's kind of what happened in the second generation here is what you're saying. Well, and the good news was we did put in the agreement and that agreement is there for those cousins. There is a deadlock break now. They will not have a situation of 50-50. Okay. When they look back on it, they don't like us for having implemented it because now they realize that they've lost the leverage of protecting their ride-along situation. But 50-50 is nifty now because there is a deadlock break and that company will not be held up because a nickel is holding up a dime. 
<laughs> you got some good things there, some good sound bites. Uh, nickel will not hold up a dime. <laughs> That's forty-eight years. So forty-eight years. So you you you've experienced this firsthand, huh, champ? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, uh, let me tell you, I think this is great. I think that what I'm taking away from this discussion here today is really that succession planning for families and businesses that really do want to pass it on to the next generation and have that desire. There's a lot of different ways to accomplish this, but it isn't going to happen magically. If you don't do the succession planning, you have to be able to look out for the interests of the family. And it doesn't happen just because you have a dream that it's going to happen. It really takes some real expertise, and especially with the larger the business entity is. The other thing that I think I'm taking away from this is this whole concept that both of you mentioned, that if a family comes together, anything is possible. And if they don't, Virtually nothing is possible. And I think for our audience out there that are family-run businesses that are looking for succession into another generation, we've had some episodes here where we're talking five and six generation businesses that have been passed along. And it's really heartbreaking to see that the sixth generation has just no interest at that point. They were raised not entrepreneurially. They went and got great educations and they're professionals and they're doctors and lawyers and college professors, what have you. And they just don't have a feel or an interest in the business. So you get to that point. But where there is this desire, I think what we've heard here today, there are people out there that have a specific competency and ability to deal with all the multitude of personal issues and things that are necessary in developing a good succession plan. Well, this has been a delightful conversation, a little bit different than what we normally have on our podcast here. So I'm grateful for both you, Lloyd and Champ, to share some of your background and decades of experience with our audience here. Champ, why don't you just share how people, if they want to chat with you, have some specific questions on exit planning, how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, they can uh, reach us at SeekingSuccession.com or the simpler one would just be Google the RawlsGroup.com and that is our website. Or if they want to reach out to me, I, my email address is very simple. It is uh, my first name, Champ. So that is C-H-A-M-P at Rawls, R-A-W-L-S group. Okay. Well, for those of you who want to reach out and get a hold of them, that's the contact information. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories Podcast. So we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories Podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.